good Friday morning. You're listening to the Vintage Radio Hour here at 90.3 WESS, East Strasburg University, East Strasburg, Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Priscilla Welch, and welcome to the show. Today's topic is, again, discussing the top radio jockeys of all time who are also Black, because it is Black History Month. And then I definitely want to dive into listing a lot of Black radio personalities that were involved, especially talking about then Word, which is spelled W-E-R-D. It was actually America's first Black-owned radio station in 1949, and it is now used as a space now for artists in Atlanta, Georgia on Wednesday nights. And then I have some information for you all as we transition throughout the show today, information for Atlanta's Black community, um, the museum space, which is another involvement for a lot of Black radio personalities. And I will be talking a little bit about just kind of like African-Americans involvement in radio in general, because I feel like that's not talked about a lot, especially at ESU. When we do vintage radio, I don't hear a lot of Black artists, songs that are played or just from the CDs as well. So I feel like me taking the time to actually do that research to see the involvement and the uh, the elevation of what African-Americans have contributed to this field, definitely for this month, especially because we only have about three or four days now left for Black History Month. So I feel like since this is going to be the second and last one specifically that I did and dedicated for Black History Month. So again, I will be starting off with the top uh, radio jockeys of African Americans that were in radio. So stay tuned. And again, you're listening to 90.3 WESS, East Strasburg University, East Strasburg, Pennsylvania. So as I stated before, I will be specifically talking about top uh, radio personalities in radio, top radio jockeys. So of course, I'm still sticking to vintage radio. So specifically African Americans that were part of this field in the early 1900s. So the first person we have is actually Jack L. Cooper. Jack L. Cooper was widely considered to be the first African-American radio announcer. And he had the all-Negro radio show that aired in the 1930s on Chicago's WSBC. Cooper was then succeeded in Black Chicago radio by very important air personalities like Al Belson. And as we talked about in the last week's podcast, Al Belson was really big on like blues and jazz and brought a lot of that to Chicago on WGES. Then he had a colleague named Herb Kent who made his mark after his move to WVON. So as you can start to see, a lot of them were colleagues in the beginning until they started off making their own paths at other radio stations. And specifically for Kent, where he had like a really strong voice to progress especially during the hard times of the civil rights movement. So that made a huge impact on that movement and to get equality rights uh, for African-Americans. And I learned this research, I'm getting this information from the news1.com. So as for Jack Gibson, he actually had a nickname, Jack the Rapper Gibson. And he actually, he, he, his start on the very first Black-owned radio station for Atlanta's Word. So as I stated before, we were going to get a little bit into Word, which is now publicly used every Wednesday night in Atlanta still. Of course, they changed the, the space of how it used to be back in 1949, but it was the very first owned Black radio station. I feel like that is very important. It has such a historical um, background to it. And it basically embodies the fast-talking style that Gibson had. And he went on, again, to create one of the first black radio trades as well. And he's really famous for black music convention of the same name. Moving on, we have Rufus Thomas. Rufus Thomas was the preeminent DJ of Memphis WDIA. And this was the nation's first radio station with an all-black air staff. So we had a triple threat performer of singing, of dancing, and comedy, and was on the Thomas Nighttime Show, Hoot and Holler. And this had like a lot of music for blues, for R&B, for anyone that was white or black. And Thomas also hosted like a lot of amateur like talent shows for the Memphis famed Beale Street. 
and it had a lot of young performers at the time, such as B.B. King, Ike Turner, and Bobby Blue Band. So this is more transitioning now into the 1950s, I want to say, because Ike Turner, of course, you know, Tina Turner's husband. So it's eh, not really like early, early 1900s, but as you can see, this is like the development um, still like back in the day. And then, like I said, we're moving on to like 1950s, 1960s. We also have Jocko Henderson. He was a legendary disc jockey on the airwaves of Philly and New York in the 1950s and 1960s. And they also nicknamed him Jocko Henderson. And he was a pioneer of all like, you know, just talking slick. He did a lot of rapid fire radio patter that influenced a lot of black and white jockeys nationwide. And then he laid such a cultural foundation specifically for rap music. And when I first found out about Jocko Henderson, I actually did not know him, never heard his name, anything like that. So I thought that was very interesting because usually when we talk about the art of rap and how it came to radio, how it came to TV, we usually mention like rappers from back in the 80s that kind of started the whole hip hop um, era or the entire rap era. People like Kid and Play, N.W.A., we talk about those rappers or even just rappers that these days may not be talked about as much that come from New York or come from New Jersey and how we have the different styles between the east side versus the west side. So I thought it was very interesting to get someone that kind of started it off in radio, but we didn't really get to see this person so much on TV unless, of course, you live during those times or if you look up a video now on YouTube or something. So unfortunately, it kind of stops there when it comes to the top radio DJ disc, disc jockeys anywhere between the 1900s and 1950s that were like the best. That's not saying that was just all of them, but it starts transitioning into, you know, artists that kind of thrived more like the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, and of course, 2000s, 2010s, and of course, now we got 2020s, if that's what you want to call it. So it doesn't really stick to the vintage opportunity that we have. So I'm going to stop there with that. And I want to dive in a little bit more today now with Word. Again, America's first Black-owned radio station. And um, it definitely has a lot of symbolism, again, not just for Black people, also for MLLK. And I'll get more into that. Um, you can actually find this information also from CNN.com. They recently did a article on this back in 2016. And because it started in Atlanta, it was basically like how we had the uh, radio stations that kind of started off in Chicago back in the early 1900s. This one specifically kind of was like a radio station specifically for the black community in Atlanta. So all the news in Atlanta, all the updates and everything, you would hear it on this radio station word. And again, like I mentioned before, it's a now a space house, a lot of artists to go ahead and perform every Wednesday night. So if you ever come up across this place, it is actually two blocks away from the famous King Center in downtown Atlanta. And it has like, it's a really like small building. But in the 1950s, specifically, it then was, it had messages of Martin Luther King Jr. and other civil rights leaders. And the building was home to the first Black-owned radio station in the United States. And it was the medium that Dr. King actually used to broadcast his Sunday sermons. Another thing I did not know, and I feel like a lot of people do not know this based on what we're taught in school, but this was kind of like a, a platform that he used to get himself out there. And this is where he did also his announcements for the civil rights marches. So that also was very interesting. So the station was basically this pride and joy for a lot of Atlanta's African-American community. And it offered a rare public venue for a lot of jazz and blues performances as well during the Jim Crow era. So this was also a place where they could kind of just go and have fun and let go and just be themselves. And it really broadcasted and spread awareness to the civil rights movement at the time and it amplified Dr. King's voice specifically as he became the face of the civil rights movement, but just like others as well that we do not talk about as much. 
but it also encouraged a lot of African Americans to vote. And in the decades, um, in the 50s and 60s, to further continue, the building word has then went through a lot of incarnations of any professional building in a changing city, and then finally serving its community as a hair salon during the 1980s and 90s. That a hair salon was that was what hairdresser Ricky DeForest thought he was getting when he signed a lease in 2004. He actually knew, though, that it was not just a hair salon, that it had a lot of history behind it. Madame C.J. Walker hair salons left in the country, named for an African-American beauty pioneer who made a fortune. You know, as we all know, Madame C.J. Walker, who was known for licensing her hair salon chain and then selling, of course, uh, beauty products in the early 20th century and then became like the first, you know, black female um, millionaire. And of course, her products are still out to this day. So he actually, DeForest, he wanted to attach that legacy to his business. And only about like two years later, he discovered his new salon had a much broader and deeper place in African-American history as the birthplace of word. And the place, again, where Dr. King was able to broadcast and spread awareness to the civil rights movement and his sermons every Sunday. So that's just a little information and background on Word. Again, you can find more about this if you just type in W-E-R-D and it will give you all the information on the first Black-owned radio station in Atlanta. So moving on, I kind of want to get into this idea, this notion that we have today. So we all talk about what's, you know, the top 100, the top 40. But did you know that back then, of course, we didn't have those terms of like what's going to be the top pop songs, the top the top trap music, the top hip-hop, the top rap, reggae, soca, like so many different genres of music. But back in the day, before it was actually called Top 40, we actually had this thing called Black Appeal Stations. So before we get to our break, I just want to talk a little bit about that. So... Black Appeal Stations were had a has a deep history to it when it comes to broadcasting in general. It's kind of like where we got this idea of the Top 40. So before the development of the radio format called Top 40 was really born, it was it's literally in quotations. Black Appeal Stations basically were reinvigorated radio. So they will play a specific group of songs pretty much aiming at young African-Americans in that time frame, that demographic. And it will be Black Appeal Stations because they were playing the music that, you know, young African-Americans at the time would want to hear. And it pretty much kept things moving. I mean, we all know that a lot of Black artists, especially who got on the radio, whenever they tried to have original music, a lot of times it was also stolen from them, like people will steal their sounds, different races. So many other radio stations soon began to employ this idea of like, what's the top 40 music? And they pretty much changed the, the name of it. And then this is where we kind of got the idea in radio, like whenever someone is doing a show and then they'll play the music of like, hey, what's trending right now? Of course, they didn't use that term back then, but it's it's like what's popular or like this is the hottest joint, you know, those type of talks, those type of conversations. So when they finally contributed Top 40 as a radio format, the stations were also making a decision to target, you know, more people, more demographics for bigger listening audience. And this is just another idea of radio in general, how radio always finds ways to adapt and change and evolve. And then it pretty much wanted to appeal to everyone at this point. So again, they're kind of, they took that idea from the African-Americans at the time that had that title, Black Appeal Stations. And now when they're adopting that these same terms and they're calling it something else, it was their way of kind of not just playing specific music for a specific race anymore. It was trying to include everyone at this point. So that's just a little bit about Black Appeal Stations and kind of where it comes from. So pretty much in 1952, drew to a close, um, the world of broadcasting was a maelstrom of pros, experiments, deals, and adjustments. So everything was 
kind of losing at this point their audiences to radio because this is where TV started to become big. So again, you're listening to 90.3 WESS, East Stroudsburg University, East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. So as I was talking about before, we're kind of diving into the top 40, basically where it kind of starts from, which is called Black Appeal Station. So as I was talking about before, a lot of other radio stations started adopting this idea of, hey, maybe we should try to reach other audiences and not just specific on one, not just focus on one specific race, but try to include all races, possibly all religions as well. So that way we can get more people to tune in. Because radio started to realize they really do have to have more diversity and inclusion because TV was pretty much taking over and doing that. So, again, going back to Jack Cooper, again, another black DJ with a big band audience who pretty much he actually refused to play R&B as it was considered low life back in the day and had a lot of suggestive lyrics. And we all know what that means. Pretty much like things were more explicit when it comes to love and sexuality and what kind of R&B is um, pretty much based on with certain things, it's pretty much real. So, of course, it's that idea of R&B back then was seen as what hip-hop is seen as now, but not necessarily hip-hop anymore because now we have this thing called trap music or even drill music. And a lot of people don't know that these are subcategories of rap or hip-hop, but it's not really compared too much to hip-hop because it's like its own thing. I mean, we have things now where it's kind of like emo rap rock, you know? So it's very weird how we include all these genres and turn it into something else entirely. It's not a lot of basic genres out there anymore, just a lot of multiple other genres that kind of deem from hip-hop or deem from pop or deem from rock or emo music. So... So pretty much they were really like sexual a lot and that wasn't considered really okay for that time era. There's a lot of cultural connotations where that was the music your mother didn't let you listen to pretty much. So the music of Black Appeal Stations gained a, a lot of popularity, mostly to a lot of Black audience in juke joints, jukeboxes, and record stores. And radio, again, was on the verge of disaster because they were looking for new ways to reach their audiences. Some stations became, of course, specifically just for African-Americans, and they were called Negro stations. Most of them were owned, actually, by whites, but they aimed towards that African-American demographic, that African-American market with various different kinds of African-American music. Then we have the WDIA Memphis claims to be the first black format radio station. And the blues great B.B. King, he started his career as a DJ on the station program by Nat D. Williams with the rhythm and blues sound. But the station also featured discussion of race issues as experienced and viewed by black announcers. So, yeah. So the format was successful and quickly spread to other stations in Birmingham, New Orleans, Nashville, Cincinnati, St. Louis, and, of course, Washington, D.C. And then in 1949, only four stations aired a Black Appeal format. By 1952, there were around 200 stations at about... And by 1956, there were over 400. So, as you can see, again, it just goes back to that whole notion of how radio just learns how to develop and adapt and change. And that's kind of what we see with podcasting as well now. So again, that's just a little history behind Black Appeal Stations and where we get this idea of what, how the top 40 was born and how we don't really talk about how African Americans have a lot of play into that. So up next, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of pretty much how race records turned into Black music and into big businesses. And then we're going to talk about um, a little bit more of some African-Americans that really contributed a lot to early radio. And again, going back to this idea of vintage radio as well. And then for today's music, I would like to play some 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s vintage blues. Um, again, since it's Black History Month, and it will be featuring um, Louis Armstrong, Count um, Bassey, and as well as uh, Lee Belly. So... Yes, we have something in store for you all. Again, this is 90.3 WESS, East Stroudsburg University, East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. So as we continue more with the show, 
Again, I wanted to talk about just this idea of race records and how they turned into black music into big businesses. So back in, again, 1926, a self-taught musician named Big Bill Brunzi found his way to Chicago. And he was actually a sharecropper at first, and he then became a soldier. He left Mississippi and headed north to escape the pervasive you know, racism going on with Jim Crow South. And, of course, with many other African Americans that tried to do the same. And that was called specifically the Great Migration. He specifically did multiple jobs as a janitor. He was a Pullman porter. He was a cook. But we all know his calling, and he became a blues musician, and that was just his thing whenever he was in front of a mic. And we have this thing called the Brunzi's Recordings. They were sold as race records, so pretty much music for and by Black audiences, and that's what they used to call them back in the day. He actually recorded a bunch of songs in just literally a decade and he even advocated for national hunger for Black voices and Black music. And he really didn't make much money in the time. Um, and I quote, this was something from him. He said, I didn't get no royalties because I didn't know any nothing about trying to demand for no money. And he actually said this to Alan Lomax back in 1947 in an interview. So Brunzi was actually one of the thousands of Black recording artists who pretty much helped develop race records between the 1920s and the 1940s. And a lot of these uh, artists are completely forgotten about or not talked about at all, but they did bring a lot of new sounds to blues, to jazz, to gospel, and they literally got no recognition for it and literally got no pay. No royalties, just like how many artists will get royalties now, even if you just play their song on the radio or if you play their song in a commercial. So at the time, America had, of course, still segregation going on literally everywhere, whether it's bathrooms, whether it's schools, whether it's buses. And a lot of black people had to watch movies and, you know, theater performances from hot, dirty balconies where they were excluded because of the racism and because of the segregation, because of Jim Crow. And even popular culture was pretty much segregated at that time. So race media, where it was music, was films, was publications and if they were created by or for African-Americans, a lot of the white audiences pretty much um, kind of knew or cared about these, or seldom that they knew or cared about these creative art forms. So a black person might own a shelf full of records by groundbreaking artists like Ma Rainey. Ma Rainey, you actually can watch her movie on, uh, I believe it's Netflix. It's like a whole uh, biography that they have on her. I actually didn't know about her until the movie came out, which is very sad. Um, the actor, Chad, the late Chadwick Boseman, he actually plays um, one of the people that were in her band, and he did a phenomenal job on that film. That's one of the last projects that he did before he passed away. Rest in peace. We also have Jelly Roll Morton or Duke Ellington, and they became literally, you know, best-selling artists and again, they were under this category of race records. You know, so a white person might have no idea who any of these artists were. And I can't even just say that because I honestly never heard of Ma Rainey. I did hear of Duke Ellington, though. His name is very, very popular. And because at the time, because race records actually were not sold in stores and they weren't advertised as much as the white radio artists had their advertisements out there. Um, they didn't really care to advertise for African-Americans. So, and though they documented and celebrated some of the best black music ever, from blues to vaudeville to jazz to race records, didn't always benefit African-Americans though. So at the turn of the 20th century, black Americans performed in all sorts of musical genres. We had ragtime, we had vaudeville, we had all black orchestras. But of course, discrimination and income inequity, you know, meant there were no black artists really were recorded. Um, I feel like, you know, we should definitely, you know, since we're in 2021 now, kind of look back and see if there is a possibility of maybe their descendants getting those royalties or just getting some type of recognition for the pioneers that they were in radio. Again, going back to those musical genres like Brad Time and Vaudeville, it was still like recording equipment, for example, was pretty much expensive for them. 
and a lot of like you know their music was owned by white people or the stations that they went to to go ahead and record and a lot of white people do not listen to black music except for the vaudeville songs that were sung by white people in blackface so that was the sad and hard and hurtful truth to that because again this is going back to that idea of what i was referring to before where um caucasian men and women who were artists in the time will steal black people's music and they will go ahead and pretty much kind of change the songs up a little bit but it will literally be the same exact lyrics there's this one film called cadillac records for example that kind of focuses on that we had you know singers like etta james for example we all know etta james if you don't that's sad but she also lived during the time era of when Elvis Presley was alive and artists like Chuck Berry, for example, he had this one song where, and this one move where he would kind of go across the stage as like a, a chicken, like that was his move. And then here comes Elvis Presley now who literally took the entire song and got completely famous for it. And to this day is known as the King. So it's, and I have nothing against Elvis Presley. It's just that when you do culture appropriation or when you kind of give recognition just to one particular race and you leave out the other, and you, it's this idea of misrepresentation. And we see that even now with a lot of the media where a lot of, for example, dark skin, um, black men and women are not representative as much, even though it's like Hollywood has this idea that all black people are pretty much mixed or biracial or light skin as I am, I would say, but we come in all different shapes, colors, and sizes. And that's pretty much how every race will want to be seen as, but specifically for people of color, it is a huge issue. I mean, there's this whole idea of kind of putting us against each other where it's like dark skin versus light skin. So Pretty much that's what's happening back in the day, and it still has never really stopped either. And even 21, I think it's even becoming a bigger and bigger issue because it's like you still don't get that same recognition or that same respect. So going back, there were actually a few early exceptions, though. So George W. Johnson, he was the first black person to ever record who became known as the Whistling Coon. And he was participating in the, the genre of ragtime whistling starting back in 1890. And vaudevillains George Walker and Burt Williams, who recorded a variety of songs at the turn of the 20th century. But for the most part, again, Black people could only be found behind the scenes. So writing many recorded hits, but receiving literally just the smallest amount of money and the smallest amount of fame or recognition or credit for their work. We even had artists like uh, Mommy Smith. And Mommy Smith was a... She recorded this song called The Crazy Blues. It was the first blues record. This time it actually sold 100,000 copies and there was like other record labels hustled to get in on the trend all of a sudden because of how much copies it sold. So that's just another example again. And again, not all race records were labeled as white owned. Black Swan Records, for example, they released about 150 race records, including recordings of black classical musicians. So there was a little here and there that, you know, again, people really didn't know too much about. So it's just literally going back all down to doing your research. So now I just want to move on. We're coming up to halfway through the show now. Again, you're listening to 90.3 WESS, East Strasburg University, Strasburg, Pennsylvania. Again, my name is Priscilla Welch. This is the Vintage Radio Historical Podcast. Again, it's Black History Month. Happy Black History Month. And this is the second and the last episode I will be doing specifically on Black history. I would like to also talk about, this is Perry Bradford. So Perry Bradford, back in 1920, he was a Black composer. He went to OK Records to try to convince them to record a Black artist. And at the time, the label had an entire division of foreign, and I quote, foreign records in languages like Norwegian and Yiddish, that were recorded for immigrant communities. And Bradford actually convinced Lib to take on a chance to record a black singer. And again, this is going back to what I was talking about before the break, and it is Mommy Smith. So he's the one that pretty much advocated for her as a blues singer. And she, again, she was able to sell like 
thousands of copies. And again, this is where everybody kind of wanted to hop on the trend of supporting black artists and AKA race records. All right. So of course there's still a lot of segregation and racism going on. Of course, race records made sense for white record labels, which had been losing market share with the introduction of radio. So they made financial sense for another reason. It was easier to exploit and underplay black artists than white ones. And many of their songs had never been published and labels snagged recording rights along with the recordings. So many artists were put on records that gave them um, pseudonyms or left out their names entirely. Yeah, entirely. Which meant they weren't able to parlay their recording careers into successful performing careers. And countless others were recorded without contracts as well, without being paid royalties. So since Black artists were more, mostly excluded from the ASCAP, which is the American Society of Composers, Artists, and Performers, the few who basically did have royalty agreements didn't have much chance of even enforcing them. And this also led to like financial predicaments for artists like Bessie Smith. Again, I did talk about this particular artist. Uh, Queen Latifah does have a film about her as well. I do advise um, watching that. But Bessie Smith is also known as the Empress of the Blues. Um, she, made, she made it to Columbia with millions of dollars. But she could not read and was never paid her royalties at all, even though she made some money. And then starting in the mid-1920s, traveling like scouts took recording equipment to the American South, where they profited off one-time local recording um, artists, whose names, of course, are not even known to this day because they have no recognition and they pretty much just stole their music. They stole what they had and they never benefited from anything. And then eventually, white audiences caught on to the black music and the race records, and they rebranded it, actually, as Rhythm and Blues. Race rec records did not decline and died, and but though the recordings capture artists like, again, Brunzi, Ethel Waters, Bessie Smith, and Louis Armstrong. So they're like the top ones that everyone pretty much would remember and know. It's also a reminder of how White businessmen use black labor to line their pockets in a time of rampant discrimination. So, yes. And then this is just a quote from Brunzi himself. He said, until I started running in this music business, I had never lived around no people that would kill their own brother like for a lousy dollar. Yes. And thank you for listening to 90.3 WESS, East Strasburg University, East Strasburg, Pennsylvania. Again, I'm your host, Priscilla Welch, for the Vintage Radio Historical Podcast, and this is the perfect blues from the 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s. Stay tuned.
streak of toe, if Bill's streak of toe, married men would have to take their beds and walk, except one or two who never drink that booze, and the blind man on the corner who sings his Bill Street blues. Well, I'd rather be there than any place I know. Oh, well, I'd rather be there than any place I know. New York might be all right, but Field Street's paved with gold. I said it's paved with gold. I was born down in Texas, raised in Tennessee. Oh, I was born in Texas, raised in Tennessee. And I ain't gonna let no one woman make a fat mouth out of me. I said a fat mouth out of me. Uh-huh. 
Tell where it's at.
My mama done told me when I was in deep bed. My mama done told me, son. What's she tell you, man? A woman will speak talk and give you the glad eye. But when the sweet talking's done, she ain't gonna do nothing. A woman's a two-faced, a worrisome thing who leave you to sing the blues every time in the night. Now the rains are falling here, the train are calling hooey. Mama just told me.
Welcome back from the break, everyone. Again, that was just some rhythm and blues music from the 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s. Again, thank you for listening to the Vintage Radio Historical Podcast every Friday morning. My name is Priscilla Welch, and you're listening to 90.3 WESS, East Strasburg University, East Strasburg, Pennsylvania. Have a good weekend. <laughs>